Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasberry. This is Frank Pelican. Tonight, you are listening to episode 135, and Frank is going to cover the top five films by actors turned directors. We are following up our director episode uh, with another kind of director adjacent episode here last week we covered the top five films of michelangelo antonioni which uh nobody wants to listen to whatsoever uh despite the fact that uh, i want to say i did not start drinking until (laughs) we finished talking about the third movie um which is really good for me and uh because we were we were tuned in last week uh talking about antonioni um but i i I get it nobody nobody even probably has seen most of antonio's movies or even one of them that's it'll mean maybe it's a slow burn it is a slow burn bergman was the same way like bergman came around bergman's one of our top episodes of all time now it's got a lot of downloads um maybe antonioni will be the same way except for i would say bergman's a lot more interesting director probably than antonioni in terms of um a casual well in terms of a casual like audience member i think I mean, Bergman's also taught in schools a lot more than Antonioni is. Seven Seals, like, heavily taught. Like, That's true. All right, so actors turned directors. Uh, I've had this list for a while. I watch these movies. God, it's been a while now. Uh, I wanted to start off by kind of talking just about this idea of actor turned director. Your list has a number, like, everybody on there, I think, is people either at one point in their lives uh, or currently you think of as actors as opposed to directors. So was that intentional kind of on your part when you did that? Yes. Okay. I think it's somebody that you should, or for me at least, it was it was an actor where when I thought of them, I think of them first and probably predominantly as an actor. Mm-hmm. Like maybe where they have a long string of iconic performances or just a really long time in the industry or they've directed and then continue to act concurrently or beyond Mm -hmm. so that even though they have movies they've directed you still like when you think of them some of these people have a large span of time on television too so you know there's just more things where you think of their performances rather than their behind the behind the scenes work sure um, so this eliminates people, say, like Sophia Coppola or Ron Howard or Harold Ramis, Rob Reiner, people like that, probably, because I think of all those people, I think any more as directors as opposed to actors, really. Uh, Ramis maybe would be the only one that you just listed that I would think of more as a still an actor. Mm. Um, but, like, yeah, like Coppola, definitely Reiner, 100%. Like, I don't even think of Rob Reiner as an actor, honestly. Yeah, it's difficult. Um, or Even somebody he... like like Woody Allen, who concurrently mm-hmm. was right. an actor and a director at the same time. And so like Tarantino, who's done acting roles outside of, sure. you know, but they're people that are predominantly, yeah. when you think of their name, the first thing you think of is their director efforts. Now, here's a here's an interesting one that I came across. What about, what do you think? And you think of Charlie Chaplin as an actor, correct? I don't want to sound like a dick, but I don't really think about Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> um, That's unfortunate. But yeah, like I, I, I think of him more as his his performances rather than his directorial efforts. 2026, top five Charlie Chaplin movies. <clears throat> I love Charlie Chaplin movies. It's fine. Okay. It's just not it. That time period is something that I 
I love Charlie like, Chaplin movies, but I don't want to watch five Charlie Chaplin movies in a row and talk about them ever, I don't think. Yeah, like, I'll watch those movies from that time period, and I do find a lot of, like, merit in it, but it's not something where when I'm just going to sit down and watch a movie, I'm like, oh, let me put on, you know, like, The Little Tramp or something, or whatever the fuck, so. We have talked about a Charlie Chaplin movie on the podcast before. Yeah, and I, fantastic movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Great Dictator for anyone who... Yes. Didn't immediately guess. <laughs> I I can't even remember what episode that was on now. I'll be honest. <clears throat> I don't remember either. Com- yeah. Some comedy episode maybe or maybe. Oh yeah, we did the top five comedies of the nineteen forties. Yep, Great Dictator was on there. That's awesome. Uh, we did Arsenic and Old Lace and right. Yeah, that was a that was a rando spin the wheel selection mm-hmm. before the spin chagrin at the bar. <laughs> right back when we used to be able to have lives and do things. <laughs> in the real world all right so i know that you had a short list of films that you sent me and i had a couple other names in case they're not on the short list to kind of put up for your consideration but um what did you have on the short list uh so and all these movies were movies that i considered like actually putting on the the final list um, it wasn't just like spitballing or whatever you want to call it um three burials of Melchiatus Estrada. Uh, by Tommy Lee Jones, um, mid two thousands uh, uh, crime drama, I guess, but more drama than crime, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Apocalypto by Mel Gibson, fantastic movie. Um, Tropic Thunder by Ben Stiller is one of my favorite comedies of the two thousands. Um, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, directed by uh, George Clooney, mm-hmm. um, also just a really fun like spy movie. Um, Gone Baby Gone, directed by Ben Affleck, which I think is a really tight crime drama. Mm -hmm. Um, The Apostle, directed by Robert Duvall, which um, Mm -hmm. to me is a pretty under, I don't know if underrated, because I think enough people appreciate it, but um, just one of those movies you don't initially think of, but it's a really powerful performance and a really great job of direction. It's kind of forgotten. I mean, at the time, it was really well-respected critically, but it's been kind of forgotten over the years, it seems to me. Yeah, I loved it when I first saw it, and then I just, for whatever reason, like, it just doesn't come to mind um, to me. Yeah. Uh, the Gift, directed by Joel Edgerton, which is, like, a um, suburban horror movie from the past 10 years. Um, Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born, which I was really impressed with, and I like that story anyway, but um, I thought him and uh, Lady Gaga were pretty fantastic, and I appreciated his direction. Um, One-Eyed Jacks by Marlon Brando, um, which is a movie that was sort of on the list until I decided to put something else on um, after you watched it and reminded me of how, like, just kind of boring it is. Um, But it's interesting to see um, Brando direct himself and just kind of like a guy who was notorious for being difficult to work with. Like, it's to me, it's fascinating to watch, like, the way that he frames himself and films himself within the context of a movie and um, I wonder if maybe like he wouldn't have been better served doing that more than what he did. Hmm. Um, the last movie by Dennis Hopper, which um, just because of Hopper, and I think it's a, an interesting look like of his weird, like weirdo psychedelia style of filming. Um, Yento by Barbara Streisand, which might sound surprising, but I think it's a really well-made movie, and I think she did a good job directing it. Uh, Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig, who um, we already talked about, so I don't know what more we could say about it, but mm-hmm. something I was really impressed by in the past few years. Um, the Beaver with Jodie Foster, which um, really well directed and kind of an interesting 
interesting situation because she's directing um, Gibson post like racist uh, anti-Semitic rant Gibson. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Foster has a pretty good eye for um, for direction. I think like probably growing up in, in film like has helped her sort of understand like the way to make a movie. Um, and the final one that was on my short list that didn't make the final list was A Quiet Place by John Krasinski, um, which I found to be like really like, I would call it like ultra competent in the way that it was filmed. Um, I don't know if there's anything like mind blowing about it, but for a guy that was, you know, an actor on a sitcom to come and like film a pretty taut, um, tension filled, you know, horror movie was is pretty impressive. So. So I've never seen it. It's kind of got like like uh, residual bird box like heat with me. <laughs> well, so the problem with it is that it was worth seeing before like everyone tried to make movies that were imitators of it. Mm. So now it feels kind of we talked about this recently some movie i put on the list from the 70s and my argument like we talked about in my argument was that you got to look at how it was when it first came out because that's when it had the most impact as opposed to sure like what's imitated it since um and really that was the thing is like this idea that that you could make a movie that was kind of small in scope um and have it be effective um and i think that it's a you know definitely passion project for him He's actually one of my like low key favorite creative people from the past like decade of somebody that took similar to um I think Ryan Patterson um hmm. somebody that took an initial success doing a thing that might be considered like disposable or fluff um and parlayed that into an actual film career doing things that have meaning and you know a deeper purpose to them so I like Krasinski yeah, a lot. Yeah, he's had an interesting career uh, considering where he's broke through. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like well enough that Jack Ryan show that he's on. So. Not a role I would have ever imagined him in at some point. But. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he's willing in the same way. And I, I think I think Pattinson's one of the most impressive actors of the past decade in a lot of ways. But um, there's a lot of lot of uh, fan talk of Krasinski eventually doing Reed Richards, and I'm I, down with that. Yeah, I think it's good casting. Yeah, uh, honestly, uh, a couple of names I wanted to bring up to you outside of those because you hit a lot of these. One is Sylvester Stallone. I think of him just as much as a director as I do an actor. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because you can't separate him from Rocky, you know what I mean? So Yeah, and then he directed like, that Rambo that we really liked a lot. Yeah, him him being the creative force behind a lot of my favorite movies of his, like, I just know him in that capacity. I'm yeah. not thinking about, like, fucking, I don't know. I'm trying to think of some terrible Celestial Solo movie. Uh, there's only a couple, honestly. Well, I really am, because I'm always thinking of him in Cobra, just so you know, but he didn't direct <laughs> that. No, he did not uh denzel um and i know he doesn't have like as a director the greatest track record i mean antoine fisher is antoine fisher and i haven't seen the great debaters but i've seen the reviews uh fence is really good though i don't know if you ever ended up watching that but his 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 adaptation of fences is 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 great 
No, I don't even think of him as a director at all. I forget about Antoine Fisher all the time. Yeah, the only other one I had on my list is Jordan Peele. Did it get out? Yeah. So maybe this is like some unconscious bias here, but like because I didn't really watch Key and Peele all that much. Mm -hmm. Like I actually watched Key and Peele more after Get Out. Aside from like the um, the fucking hilarious uh, football, the like, all pro game football players yeah. like saying their names thing, which is amazing, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, the Gremlins two pitch meeting, which is amazing. Yes, and on, honestly, the same thing with like the um, where he's the teacher, teacher not getting and, the names correct, yeah. yeah, reading the names incorrectly. A A A A Ron, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't really watch Key and Peele because I'm not much into like skit comedy anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, as a boring, sad adult, um, so for me, like I think of him more as a director, honestly. But I think it's an interesting cultural thing, though, is that I I feel the same way. I think of him as like director, produce writer, director, producer now, as opposed to actor. And I think it's just how big of a splash he's made in the past five years since that in terms of producing different movies writing different movies and i mean he was produced Candyman, um uh kind of like sequel i guess remake reboot or whatever and then he produced what twilight zone and he's produced um oh what's the mo- name of the movie that i like um with the underworld did he he directed he didn't direct that did he us yeah did he direct us yeah oh okay yeah um, that and that and um get out or his yeah, two okay. directorial efforts okay uh oh yeah us is really, really good yeah the other thing too is like so let's let's go back to krasinski for a second krasinski is an actor on the show where he's just an actor on a show and i know that like he was a producer at times or whatever but key and peel like created that that series and we're the driving force behind every single skit and episode on that series so even then like to me he still is jack of all trades isn't the right word but like uh like a renaissance man in in, in that respect and like mm-hmm. just always having a part in the direction and the casting and the um the screenwriting and everything so i don't know yeah. i have a lot of respect for that dude and i'm super excited for him to continue to make movies like through time but to me he's more of i look at him as more of and this is not at all like apples to apples but i look at him more as like somebody like jerry seinfeld you know what i mean um like i don't necessarily think of jerry seinfeld as just an actor or whatever because he right. did so many other things and or um larry david you know like even though your primary thought of those people is the roles they play on television shows, like, because you know about their input and what they've done, like, around that, like, I don't know that you ever just think of them, like, that's just an actor or whatever. Yeah, right. I don't even think of Larry David as an actor, I don't think, like, ever. Um, right, even though your real exposure to Larry David. Yeah, sure. Like, had if Curb Your Enthusiasm doesn't exist, because of your love for Seinfeld, maybe you do, but how many other people hear Larry David's name and think like, oh yeah, that's the guy that, sure. you know, 
helped create Seinfeld. Like you think of him as friggin' Larry David from Career Enthusiasm. Absolutely. I think of him horrifying the shit out of me numerous times. <laughs> uh, one question, one question I want to follow up with you is, uh, do you know whether Dennis Hopper is dead or not? Yeah, Dennis Hopper is dead. Oh, okay. He's been he, dead for okay. That's what I said. Okay. Yeah. Good job. All right. Yeah. In 2010. Uh, I did not know that. I don't think. Yeah. I just assumed yeah. Dennis Hopper was still out there doing something. That was wild. Um, It was pretty sad when it happened. I was um. It's one of those weird ones that affects you that you don't really think about, but then like it kind of hits you that like man, like that guy's dead. Yeah. Mm. So it was one of those moments when that happened. He would have gotten a shot at the bar if we were going to the bar at that point in time. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. You ready to jump in these then? Let's do it. All right. Number five on your list. Let me go ahead and start drinking here. Number five on your list is 1996's Matilda, directed by Danny DeVito. It stars Mara Wilson, Danny DeVito, Rhea Perlman, and Beth Davids and Paul Rubens. It has a 90% from critics and a 73% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you put it on the list instead of War of the Roses or Throw Mama from the Train? Well, Throw Mama from the Train is never going to make a list that I make. So, And you know what? War of the Roses also is never going to make a list that I make. So let's just get that out there that not a fan of those movies. What about marriages that fall apart and the partners try to kill each other? Top five movies. Does War of the Roses make a list? I would never let you put that as a top five movies list. I would I would abstain. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, yeah, War of the Roses might make that list. And see, now I'm thinking about it. I, anyway, um, What Lies Beneath, I guess, maybe. Um, terrible movie. So Matilda is an adaptation of a Roald Dahl uh, novel. Um, It's about a young girl who lives with a family, um, the Wormwoods, played by DeVito, uh, Rhea Perlman, and some kid um, who are cheats and liars and thieves and scumbags and really like the absolute representation of what you would call like the ugly American kind of. Um, But Matilda is this bright, talented young girl who can read at an early age and who's thoughtful and caring and who also has some psychic powers like inside her um so she gets sent to school at this academy that's run by a woman called the trunchbull that's her last name trunchbull um who's a typical roll doll character she's a authoritarian and she's abusive and um mean-spirited and has no interest in like ever doing anything nice for a child um matilda gets into a class of a woman named miss honey who's played by m beth davids um who's sweet and kind and sees the potential in matilda and basically that's the movie is kind of you find out that um miss honey was the niece of the trunchbull and the trunchbull might have murdered her her father uh, miss honey's father to get his house and his money um so there's kind of a like some parody there i guess between the two characters where matilda starts to use her powers to try and help miss honey and also help herself and um they eventually 
scare the trunchbull off by making her think that she's being haunted by the ghost of the dead father um and in the end of the movie when um the wormwoods are finally getting convicted of fraud and it's actually in my opinion one of the funniest things in the movie which is um they're continuously under surveillance by these two police officers that are parked across the street and Matilda is constantly trying to tell them, like, hey, there's two cops outside watching the house. Yeah. And they're like, no, nah, no, nah, those are jet boat salesmen. <laughs> like, those are speedboat salesmen. Like, they're, they're, they're so nice. We were talking to them. Huh. Um, when the speedboat salesmen finally catch up to them, um, she ends up getting adopted by Miss Honey. Uh, so she doesn't have to go with them to Guam or wherever it is they're going. Um, and that's that's the end of the movie. I mean, it's there's a lot of personal nostalgic attachment to this movie so this is one of the first movies i ever took my brother to um when he was a child like we went and saw this movie together um just the two of us in the summer i think i think he came out in the summer um and we both enjoyed it um i yep. like the fact that it's it's not approached in a way that's like it's not just all like children's movies from this time either were very much leaning towards like lowbrow humor to appeal to children and kind of make their parents laugh or they were like this which in my opinion is you know kind of well crafted and thoughtful and a good sense of humor to them um, a lot of really um, kinetic like slapstick comedy elements to it um, I think that DeVito and Rhea Perlman are fantastic in their roles of these like scummy asshole parents that don't care about how special their child is and really don't care about anything but defrauding other people and earning money. Um, honestly, I think the weakest part of the movie is probably M. Beth Davids, and I like her, uh, but she's really like, there's not much to her. Um, although I guess that's sort of the point is she's playing this woman that's been kind of oppressed her entire life and is now like through this burgeoning love of for this child like a mother-daughter love that she has for this child she's starting to like regain her agency um the trunchbull the woman that plays that character does a really great job and i like devito films it in a way that when you read i don't know how much you read roll doll when you were young but not at all <clears throat> devito films that movie in the way that roll doll's books read like in your head when you're reading them um and there's a couple of like directorial missteps i think I mean, like he does the montage over music a little too much um i think that happens like three or four times in the movie mm -hmm. um but for the most part like it's it's bright and it's colorful it's got a very like technicolor vibe to it um the performances are all really good um mara wilson pretty fascinating story like where she had a role before this i think some miracle on 34th street remake and then she did this role and her mother died like either when this was in production or post-production and she kind of dropped out of acting for a long time and has only like sporadically gone back and done roles that she's really cared about but um just kind of disappeared from from being an actress and um yeah she's been doing a lot of, she does a lot of web series i remember yeah, seeing. Yeah yeah it's been in like the past 10 10 or 11 years like she started doing these i guess it's like a group of people that she knows because she went to the titch school of film and she went somewhere else she got like a postgraduate degree or maybe it's reverse she went somewhere and then went to tish um but she's got a really strong background in film and she just doesn't you know yeah 
I guess maybe the money that she gets from Matilda or whatever, she doesn't really need to necessarily work. So, um, and it makes it's the only uh, rusted root song that I care about ever. <laughs> um, that plays over the opening and the ending, and is like extrapolated throughout the movie's score. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's an enjoyable, fun movie. Like if you have kids, it's something you can watch with your kids, and I feel like you're being like talked down to or it's not like super cloying or i don't know it actually has an element of danger to it so it's kind of a throwback in that respect to 70s and 80s children's movies where there's an element that maybe a child could die or that maybe a child has died at some point Mm -hmm. even though it's not done in as dark a way as like i don't know like goonies or whatever um something wicked this way comes like it still is that element that is sort of missing from later you know like i don't know first kid or some shit like that i don't know why first kid is always my thought of a terrible children's movie but if it's the bill so yeah i don't know there's really not much to say about it i mean it's there's not a whole lot of like depth or whatever but it's enjoyable and i really enjoyed watching it again this time and yeah you made it sound a lot better than uh than when i watched it i i it was i liked it well enough it's not my kind of movie that's it like but it was it was it was more fun and than i expected it to be it's it goes pretty quickly i can't remember i think it's like an hour and 40 or something but it's like it it goes very quickly like it's well paced overall like you said maybe some musical montages that go on for too long or too many of them but it's no it's 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 enjoyable um I think having watched it for the first time ever at 41 probably makes it feel yeah. a little different, but. Uh, so let me ask you this question, because I yeah. actually think about this sometimes. Not to like spill your business, but you don't have any kids, right? Right. And you've never really been in a situation where you've had to no. care for children, no. like to be the person that's like introducing them to, uh, to things. Absolutely not. Because even with my son, who you have a really good relationship with, you know, it's always, I mean, he's been super mature most of his life, but that's more of like an interpersonal relationship, not like, hey, let's sit down and watch this movie. And stuff like Matilda is something that when you're at that weird pre-teen age with a child where you can watch this, it's one of those movies you can watch and it's appealing and it's watchable and you're not bored with it and you're kind of showing them some things because it, it it you know it has resilience and it has you know some good moral lessons in it like matilda doesn't dime out her family even though she knows they're thieves because they're still her family so it's you know about loyalty and whatever Ugh. yeah i'm sorry what was that Ugh. it's toxicity but um right and that's true, but... <laughs> but... Yeah. it's 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 1996 and it's based on a book from whatever she just doesn't want to lose her trip to, she doesn't want to go to the orphanage so she's doing it for herself anyway um yeah i just think it's interesting like it's like i love spongebob and i don't know that you've really ever like watched yeah. any spongebob and you Not know that's really. the thing is like that was something that i found a lot of enjoyment and merit in because i was watching it with a child and I don't know if I didn't have, because right now, like, I can't tell you hardly anything that um, is on television or in the movies for kids. Although my mom, like, still watches that one young girl. 
So I've seen stuff like the Sing movies and whatnot, and I I think they're fine. Like I think there's some decent stuff to them. Dude, I haven't seen any of that shit for a long, long time. None of yeah. them. So that's the thing is I wonder if there's just because of that connection that I have inside anyway, that maybe I'm a little more um a little more open to like appreciating sure. that stuff. It's like a colleague of mine. I ended up having to get your opinion on it uh, as like 13 year old daughter was getting into horror and I asked my opinion last year and I started like thinking like the things immediately like oh like what would I what would I show a kid like if I was like on a horror and like I started coming up with things and then it's like like I, I don't have that mind that like immediately thinks like what's in that movie and then is that appropriate like I think anything's appropriate for a 13 year old even though it's probably not because i was allowed to watch pretty much whatever the hell i wanted growing up so i have no because of that like watching beverly hills cop at age six and what the shining at 10 uh, although i'm not allowed to watch roadhouse at 10 because it has tits like right weird shit like in the 80s and 90s like people with sexuality versus language and violence um and then not having children, I have no barometer whatsoever in terms of what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Yeah, I get it. So, but yeah, something like this. Um, but Matilda's yeah, eminently like nine, not eight, nine, ten, somewhere in there. Tony was probably too old. Um, Tony was born in '84, I guess. So he would have been probably. 12 when we went to see this movie mm -hmm. i don't know if there was anything else appropriate for him to see though right yeah august of 96 i looked it up so yeah yeah so it, he would have been he would have been 11 about to turn 12 so maybe that was appropriate at a different age too like i don't know the only thing this made me think of watching this really is that things that involve precocious precocious children like those like gifted type children i largely do not like things about gifted children just in general um like i said this was fine like it was a fun movie but like just in general like the idea of gifted children i but i love movies i realized where it's like the prodigies become troubled adults going back to and i only realized that because around the same time as watching this, I had watched Tenenbaums for the 2001 episode, and it made me real. And I had watched Magnolia because we, um, you know, um, just because I, I watched it again. It was on Netflix for free. And yeah, I love movies about like gifted children become damaged adults, but I, I the children, when they're the children themselves, I, I'm not a, not a fan. Yeah. Yeah. But, I'll make you watch Harriet the Spy someday on a list. Oh, geez. Okay. That's another movie that I really like from that time period. Is that um, Trachtenberg? Hmm. Like Dawn from... Um... No, no, I don't think so. Maybe. Oh, look. I've never made that connection if that's the case. I mean, I saw Harriet the Spy in... It is. Isn't the show Trachtenberg? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I saw Harriet the Spy, like, what is that movie? 95, maybe? Oh, uh, 96, same year. It came out a month before this. Before yeah. Before Matilda. Huh. 
It had a really good poster, too. So that was Paramount, and this was Sony. So, um... I thought it was Columbia. What? Matilda? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's distributed by Sony. It was, um, TriStar was the production company distributed by Sony, and Harriet the Spy was Nickelodeon, obviously, and then uh, distributed by Paramount. Hmm. And who won the box office war there? It, Matilda. Nope. Well, I mean, it made more money, but if you if you're looking at gross, uh, it was Harry the Spy. Mm. It made Harry the Spy made twenty six point six on a twelve million dollar budget, and Matilda made thirty three point five on a thirty six million dollar budget. I mean, I'm sure Reynolds probably made up the difference in sales for Matilda, but. So it won't hit broke, it won't pass, at least broke even. But. <clears throat> oh, all right. Ready to move on? No, I want to talk about this movie for another half hour. Right? Um, okay. <laughs> let's, so, number four on your list, going into the 50s, weird territory for us a lot of times. So 1955's The Night of the Hunter, directed by Charles Lawden. It stars Robert Mitchell, Shelley Winters, Lillian Gish, Peter Grays, and Evelyn Varden. Has a 95% from critics and 90% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this and why it's on the list? Um, I mean, one of the most important movies of the 1950s um, and definitely one of the greatest performances of maybe all time, but definitely at least the first half of the existence of film um night of the hunter follows a basically like proto serial killer um and robert mm-hmm. mitchum's uh preacher character um who is basically a lonely hearts killer where he murders women and steals their money and then moves on um under the auspices of he's going to <clears throat> open a church um because he feels like he has a personal relationship with god uh, while he's in prison at one point, he uh, meets up with this man who had robbed a um, banker or something, um, and he got put in jail, um, had two young kids and a young wife, was put in jail and, and dies, but reveals in his sleep that he had hidden the money um, and that his children know where it is. So uh, Mitchum's character goes to meet them, uh, woos the mother even though the two children are immediately suspicious. Um, gets married to the mother, um, is abusive to the mother and the children, um, immediately turns from this kind, charming man of God to be in this totalitarian asshole. Um, the mother dies, and uh, he uses that as his opening to really kind of just like push the children where you know, you need to tell me where this money's hidden or I'm going to kill you too. Um, they escape and he tracks them. They eventually get sort of adopted, although I don't know how that really works. Like she just kind of takes them in and they live there. Um, this kindly woman that takes care of other children that are sort of runaways or orphans. Um, and in the end, he gets his, his comeuppance um, and they get to live with... Uh, live with the woman and celebrate Christmas and sweet movie. Um, the reason that I love this movie so much 
um, is definitely Robert Mitchum. I think that Mitchum is number one. It's, it's, it's a really, I think it's a really daring approach to, you look at something like, like uncle Charlie in shadow of a doubt. So what year is that? That's like late forties, probably, I guess, or what do you, nah, it's early forties. I think, um, I think it's 42, maybe. So you look at uncle Charlie, and Chad, uncle Charlie in shadow of a doubt, who's yeah. inherently the same character in a lot of ways. Um, in the sense that he's a lonely hearts killer and a con man, he doesn't, but the nuance number one of making, Mitchum's character think that he's doing the work of God. Super bold for the 1950s, even if it's in a villainous way and you're making him the villain, even associating it with this man who's like bringing people in almost like a cult leader, like Jim Jones, because of the way that he talks about the Lord and the way that he can quote the Bible. It's super insidious, like in the, the townspeople he meets. And then to have it be so, you know, like there's one of my favorite shots in the whole movie um, is after um, the mother has died and the shot is underneath the water uh, while she's chained up inside the car with her hair like billowing out like into the waves above her and it's just freaking beautiful but you almost never saw the corpse back then you know what i mean like you almost never saw the result of the murder and even though it's not bloody or whatever it still is really bold that like you're watching this man this man who's a serial killer for the most part like stalk and kill his prey and it's just um i don't know it's a movie that i loved a lot when i was young um, because I think I was so surprised by how, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is like bold. It was, or forward thinking. Mm-hmm. And it also, in a lot of ways predates stuff like, um, actual real psychological, like profiling and whatnot. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, because you look at like the way he talks about his views on family and women and his childhood and just his approach to you know like kind of ferreting out the weakness in people so he can take advantage of it and kind of like doing it in plain sight in a lot of ways and moving across the country as he does it sort of like leaving the trail of bodies in his wake it's just um yeah harrowing movie at times with one of my favorite performances probably ever in a film. I mean, I, I, I think Robert Mitchum is pretty much perfect in this role, um, just with his menace and his he has charm. A, he has a lot of movies where he's really good in, and this is still the best um, role that he has. Because I absolutely love him in Out of the Past, and it's, it's probably my favorite noir role of his, like, 40s noir role. And this is just this is on like a different plane to me he imbues this guy and that's the thing that takes this this villain to me and makes him like almost a villain of today is this 
natural almost sense of humor that the character has at times sure where he thinks he's really funny <laughs> at times like he has he has a sense of humor about his own um sadism and his own violent nature nobody else thinks it's funny uh and there there's also most the sense that you kind of laugh in a kind of grossed out way like 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 a lot of movies like where it's like the villain is saying something that they think is really funny and you're taken aback that you like chortle like a little bit like or like (laughs) oh my god and and i don't see that necessarily in the 40s or the 50s i don't see that for this like like this, he does um, things with a smile on his face sometimes when he's basically threatening murder to children. <clears throat> right. And the, to your point, like this is this is a role that would be believable today. Yeah. Whereas there's a lot of stuff from that time period where you could not go back and we were just talking about this with um and I still have never even watched it, the Rebecca remake, right? Mm-hmm. Um they almost have to completely change like the entire I don't know how I want to say it like tone of the characters in in that movie and it's like I think that if if Robert Mitchum was alive and did this performance today like it would still be believable and shocking and you know you would really get like pulled into it yeah the one thing the one thing we didn't do with Matilda that I want to do and I will go back a little bit but so this is directed by charles lawton yeah who is one of the greatest character actors i guess mm-hmm. of the first 20 or 30 years of like talking film speaking film um do you know lawton really at all i've seen him in things yeah i mean i Lon's one of those guys where whenever I watch a movie, if he's in it, I immediately have a higher expectation for what's going to happen in that movie Mm -hmm. Um, because he's so good and he's so self-assured and he just fills his roles with like his personality. Um, Probably, I guess, maybe witness for the prosecution is maybe his most famous role, Mm -hmm. I would think. Um, But I had like for the first i don't know 10 years of my life being familiar with this movie maybe more than that i had no idea that charles lawton directed it or never like registered with me watching the credits that i was that's that same guy um Mm -hmm. whereas with like devito to me like i always up until really probably up until get shorty um but even beyond that like i've always kind of thought of devito as being just this I'm going to say this with a sneer, but I don't mean to. This comedic actor. um, And really, like, watching him direct Matilda, or not watching him direct Matilda, but, like, watching Matilda and knowing that he directed it, it it gives you, like, a little more perspective on, I guess, that person as a as a creator yeah i had that on my notes actually is that i think it shows what i always thought of him through the the interviews and stuff like that is he's really like this caring and thoughtful guy 
like DeVito. And I think you can see that in how he treats that material is, 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 is how like, you know, kind of thoughtful, I think, and, um, you know, fun loving and, you know, and caring, you know, and stuff that he is. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it it certainly gives me a different perspective on DeVito having seen him direct that movie. Yeah. Um, And Lawton, some of sometimes I feel like the direction is the weakest part of Night of the Hunter. Um, even though I think there's some beautiful stuff in it, but um, to me, it definitely feels. You can tell that Lawton grew up in film in the era that he did, um, just because of some of the choices he makes with framing and, um, but still some beautiful stuff. Like especially at night on the river. I love all that stuff in this movie. Um, again, like I pointed out, the her body just kind of like how he lingers on it, like in that really slow, like pan out <clears throat> um, on her corpse, just like in the water. It's um, some of that stuff. Some of those. Well, so I should say this, just so everybody knows. C- contemporaneously, this movie was not well received the night of the hunter when it came out like by audiences by critics like nobody cared for this movie and in fact some of those scenes you're talking about were two of the three or four that are most heavily criticized in from reviewers at the time because of this kind of odd german expressionism-esque way that he films things at different points in the movie and they thought that there was they didn't understand the choices that he was making. And I think some of those things they're criticizing is actually some of the more interesting stuff in this movie. Oh yeah. It's definitely very forward looking in terms of, um, just the way that it's approached and the subject matter and the way that it's filmed. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah. I mean, and now this movie is like, I mean, I'm trying to think like the the thing that I thought was really interesting when I was looking at like its achievements like throughout history is um as I'm scrolling to find the the one that matters more is that it was like the top 50 movies you should see before the age of 14 or something like that it was on some list I think from BFI it was like okay that's 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 weird all right um would you show would you show a under 14 year old this movie do you think? I mean, it's, there's not there's like gore or violence or anything, but it's a pretty disturbing villain. Still, yeah, I play, would. I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You said under fourteen. Like I would show like a eleven or twelve year old this movie okay. if I thought they were right. interested in it. Gotcha. Frankie had no interest in this movie at all. He thought it was really boring, even though he um when you watched it a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, he really liked the performance and everything, but I he just wasn't super into the. Top ten overall story. Top ten fifty movies you see before the age of fourteen from the BFI. Um, which that's crazy. Like, I mean, you think about that. It's like on AFI, it's number thirty four of all time. On uh, heroes and villains, he's number twenty nine of all time. And like, this has been cited by Scorsese and. I'm pretty sure De Palma and Altman as being and god you can see it at times in altman i think uh, absolutely um but you know it's really similar to and i mm-hmm. i'm just saying this 
from a general perspective, not because I I believe this, but like it's like Silence of the Lambs for us. Like, mm. imagine imagine being a fifteen year old kid in the fifties and seeing this movie for the first time. I mean, yeah. when I saw Silence of the Lambs, I was probably that age, like fourteen or fifteen, and just it blew me away. Like, I love that movie because you didn't see anything like that previously like it wasn't Mm -hmm. you know no one was talking about serial killers in the way the silence of the lambs did and this movie does a very similar thing you know 40 years prior or whatever 30 some years prior so yeah yeah definitely a super important movie and um it's one that i always enjoy watching i've probably seen it a dozen times in my life oh that's crazy okay yeah i've only this is only the second time i've ever watched it um having watched it as a late teen i think when i heard about it It, it's that famous shot is and i can't remember where i saw it it was some entertainment weekly book of like the top 100 movies of all time or something like that but it it had that that still of him with the not with the knuckles yeah leaning on the like looking up on the um, banister Uh or whatever yeah and uh it had that famous shot on there um i'm assuming that'll be one of the shots that i use for facebook for this but um yeah so there was a something completely off topic that's related to this movie though there was a tv movie that was remade in 1991 as i was going through my research starring richard chamberlain can you imagine richard chamberlain doing this role no yeah okay I don't, I don't, this is one of these roles and you, we do this exercise, you know, occasionally throughout the years. Mm -hmm. This is one of the roles where I don't know that I could ever see anyone else doing it. And I don't know that anyone else should ever try to do it. Right. Like, I think this is, um, I don't know, like Olivier playing Hamlet or something. You know what I mean? Like, not that anybody else can't play Hamlet, but yeah like you you're following like the most masterful performance that you could follow like why try and do it you're never going to achieve that level i think of like perfection of casting really so i don't know yeah so this movie is also in the process of being remade oh shit (laughs) i wish i didn't know that uh it is being it's being done by a guy named Matt Orden, who was the writer of a movie called Operation Finale, which was Oscar Isaac Ben Kingsley movie about hunting down some guy that orchestrated the Holocaust or something. Um, yeah, so you have that possibly, you know, you know how Hollywood is. Maybe to look forward to is, is a Night of the Hunter remake here in the next two years or so by a guy who doesn't really have any credits uh to 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 his name um, well, well it, you know what that's like that's like that fucking jacob's ladder remake like i'll probably watch it but i'll hate myself for it uh, all right yeah night of the hunter is a classic movie if you've never seen it you should check it out like if you like film that's extremely influential uh, it's, I still think holds up, like um, at least for our age. Um, not to discount what Reggie's saying, I can see him being bored with it. 
he also was probably playing Pokemon or Smash Brothers and right. talking to somebody yeah. on the phone. I mean, I it's it's like he's like sometimes he the movie comes on and he gets super invested, like mm-hmm. where everything goes down and he just is like spun around and watching. Mm-hmm. Um, this was not one of those times. Right. So I think part of that too is the fact that it's in black and white. I don't know how much he really appreciates black and white film. So that's interesting. All right. So number three on your list, back to this guy again, is Clint Eastwood's The Outlaw Josie Wales from 1976. It stars Eastwood. It also stars Chief Chief. Dan George, Sandra Locke, John Vernon, Sam Bottoms has a 90% from critics and 92% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about The Outlaw and why you put it on the list, particularly against other Eastwood movies? Um, this is probably this is probably my favorite Eastwood directed western. I think, hmm. um, and one of my favorite kind of transitional westerns from the spaghetti slash um standard hollywood cowboy westerns of the 50s and 60s into like the more mm, counterculture ideas of the western in the 70s um and i think this is a really good example of yeah that's that's interesting to me if we if i can just follow up with you just a little bit on that so we've done spaghetti westerns we've done modern westerns and we've done acid westerns so far as episodes this you're right like we haven't done a classic westerns episode yet like we've talked about it and it'll probably come at some point but how do you distinguish so how do you distinguish what makes this different from both classic and spaghetti but not yet i would say modern well, it still has a lot of the tropes of the classic Western in terms of the way that Eastwood films it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean specifically the landscapes. Um, some of the set pieces, maybe. Uh, you know, it still is... It's hard to explain. There's just like... It's got a very classic sense to it, um, especially in the way that he films it. Like, it always feels very dusty and very old i guess i don't know how else to say it i mean it's it's difficult to phrase what but, i'm like but, thinking so of in my let's, mind let me really quickly say so one eye jacks right filmed in 1961 when brando does that that feels like it was a colorized version of something from 1944 to me sure this feels like it's a prototype of something I would see on almost in like 1990. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like this is, I, I think this is bridging the gap between mm-hmm. those two eras. Um, and in a lot of ways, because he's sort of, sort of still pulling from his own character and, um, hmm. Like the Leone movies, where it's not 100%. Right. I don't want to say original, because I think that Josie Wales is enough of his own man. He is. In terms of a character. Do you think it's an amalgamation, then, maybe, of, like, different facets that's, like, pushing it forward, maybe, then? And also, because 
this is one of the first movies where you've got a wide variety of people that are kind of being the hero mm-hmm. um, of the movie in the sense of he's got the chief that he falls in with. He's got the, um, the Cheyenne woman that he saves from being raped that joins his party. Um, then there's the whatever manifest destiny spinster grandma mm-hmm. and her family with Sandra Locke. I mean, there's just, there's a wide variety of people that kind of gather around him and he's not, it's not like John Wayne and the searchers, you know what I mean? Like right. that's the difference that here's a character that's living at roughly the same time in a film that's filmed 15 years after the searchers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that is more accepting of the fact that other people can contribute or have worth, you know, and that's, that's right. not something that you're used to seeing yeah. um, in the films of the time. So, yeah, that's true. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to follow up on that because I, I had a th- the same feeling kind of that it was like not, it wasn't modern, but it wasn't spaghetti, but it wasn't any classic in any way. I also feel like in a lot of ways, Eastwood gets worse the older he gets as a director. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least I enjoy his movies less. And I think you can still see a large element of maybe like budding libertarianism here or I mean, it's fascinating that it's based on a novel written by like a former grand grand dragon of the KKK. Oh yeah. Um, I did not know that, and I was really surprised again, just because of the way that it views Native Americans as being people that deserve respect and are equals to the, you know, the white man. Yeah. Um, very well, pro, very anti-union movie. Um, which they don't necessarily it's interesting because like how do you make how do you make the people that were fighting against slavery the villains in your film right and right it's really tricky the way that they do it because they're not necessarily representatives of the union they're just bounty hunters that happen to side with the union and are now being used by a guy who's basically a carpetbagger who's trying to um, sort of foster as much power as possible in the transition between, you know, the union coming in and like defeating uh, the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't really ever approach, you know, like Josie Wales was fighting for the Confederacy but was doing so because he lived in Kentucky, I guess is where it initially starts out or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And was just trying to raise his family. I don't know. I don't know, man. Like it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. And it's another thing that kind of follows Clint Eastwood throughout (laughs) his career is like, isn't it fascinating? This always happens. This always happens. Every single time we end up talking about an Eastwood movie, you can't, not talk about the movie without talking about Eastwood. So here's what I want to well, do real quick. I want you to talk about why this movie is good. It has really great performances in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's filmed beautifully. Like I love the setting. 
from kind of those oh it's 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 the missouri river so it's the rolling banks of the missouri you know mm-hmm. and it's really got like a classic like technicolor disney feel to it like the davy crockett shit but with a much harder edge mm-hmm. um i really like the fact that it views women and native americans as being equals to this man and that he views them like that because most of the time you know the quote-unquote indian is the bad guy and there's definitely a respect that Josie Wales has for pretty much anyone, like any other human, which is odd to see. Um, or he just has an overriding sense of justice, which is pretty typical in Eastwood's movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got one of my favorite set pieces in any like Western of this era and like modern Western in the when the villains are raiding. Um, the settlement house that they've taken over um and everyone's defending it by shooting out the windows they have like little uh i can't remember what those are called in real life but they have the slits cut in the windows and stuff where they can move the rifles around Mm -hmm. and they're um fighting off the the bad guys who are trying to get on the roof and i don't know it's just it's it's really well filmed um and i like the ending too the idea that you know i always like that kind of like almost like myth building style of storytelling where Josie Wales is just going to go try and live in peace with this these people that he's created as his family now um and the guy that was his partner that sort of like in the wild bunch the um what's his name character it's just gonna I mean that's a less violent ending here but he's just gonna like go to Mexico and continue to look for Josie Wales, even though he knows like exactly where he is. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of good in this movie. And I think that Eastwood's really good in this movie. Yeah, I do too. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not the biggest Western fan in the world. I think I am the older I get, but um, this is a solid Western. I like this movie a lot. It's the first time I've ever seen it. Honestly, I've seen peace. So on television before I never actually sat down and watched it and the whole thing before. And uh, yeah, really well filmed. I think the cinematographer on this, uh, Bruce Surtees, uh, probably is owed a lot of credit in helping Eastwood out here in terms of filming some of the, just from having seen, oh shit, what's the name, the movie we talked about, 1971, last month, that Eastwood directed with Jessica Walter? Oh, um, uh, play Misty for me. Play Misty for me um from watching his work on that which is really impressive from for for his first film um i think some of the outdoor stuff probably i think the cinematographer probably has some say over a bit more and i i think that probably so i do want to just kind of mention him quickly but yeah this is a well-filmed movie i think eastwood's really good in it i think it's an interesting story yeah um I um I, I wanted to get through that because I, I I felt this was just going to be talking about Eastwood for <laughs> twenty minutes because damn is this movie pivotal beyond the idea that it's the outlaw Josie Wales because as you mentioned there's the whole idea that this is written by a former clan leader and who was also a speechwriter for George Wallace the segregationist um, in the South. So 
how he ends up directing this movie is historical. Philip Kaufman is the guy who adapted this thing from from and and the, and the writer of this book that it was adapted from. His name is Asa Earl Carter, and he was under the pen name Forrest Carter. Forrest for Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was the returner of the clan. So Philip Kaufman adapts this and is set to direct it and begins directing this. A rift forms between Eastman and Kaufman during the filming. Kaufman apparently is very attention, uh, very like uh, oriented to being detail oriented i guess i don't know what i'm trying to say but it's like he 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 would do things like where he would like not like the tin can that is going to be used for a shooting target and go off and try to find it's almost like ocd like go off and try to find like his own like a better tin can because that's what needs to be in the scene and so he goes off and like does that one day trying to find it's actually a beer can as a prop and like he goes off to find it and um eastwood is like fed up with this due to this point particularly because now and this is where like the interpretation comes in but they've already had disagreements over the plot because kaufman argues that this was written by a fascist like quote end quote (laughs) a fascist and wants to change the script and Eastwood doesn't want to change the script. And also Kaufman and Eastwood are competing for the affections of Sandra Locke. Right. So this guy goes off to find a beer can as a prop one day and Eastwood convinces the producer to fire this dude. And he takes it over. Why well, we're this... losing light? Like he's what we're losing. Right. So this leads to a fucking rule, a rule in Hollywood that the, the Directors Guild passed, speaking of unions, right? <laughs> Called the Eastwood Rule that prohibits an actor or producer from firing the director and then personally taking on the director role. <laughs> like but that's what Eastwood does, and he ends up paying like a a fine um, for doing like taking like having this guy fired and doing this. Um, so that's important about this movie is fucking Eastwood gets a rule named after him because he doesn't get along with the director and gets him fired behind the dude's back as the dude's trying to find a fucking prop, and and but also low key this guy's like competition with him for the woman that he's trying to get with uh which says something then that gets into this aspect of this movie this is where eastwood and sandra Locke meet and if you've never read that story go read it i'll give you the too long didn't read is they it seems fall in love she's married to a guy that's possibly gay but is not really known for sure. They've never consummated the relationship. The guy that she was married to says years later that like you it's at that time you just didn't live together um if you weren't married, so they got married. So she ends up having this relationship with Eastwood that is long term. Like they're together for like years. Know, yeah. And apparently 
he starts getting very passive aggressive. There is the possibility of adultery going on inside this relationship. They never get married per se. Uh, she says that she ends up having, she's public about having abortions a couple times from, uh, you know, that would have been Eastwood's child. Um, and eventually they end up like, you know, getting separated or whatever, like, you know, and she contacts a divorce attorney to, even though they're not married to try to see like what she can get, like, you know, from their separation, because basically he's been taking care of her for many, many years. And her casting has largely been reliant on Eastwood's movies. So, and this is called palimony as opposed to matrimony, uh, like, um, or alimony, sorry. Um, and they, so during this time, Eastwood apparently wiretaps the phones at the house hmm. to hear her conversations with the attorney because he suspects that she's getting ready to contact an attorney. They eventually reach an agreement for a $1.5 million multi-year film like directing pack with Warner Brothers in exchange to drop the suit, the palimony suit that she's filing. Between 90 and 93, more she pitches different scripts that she sees and wants to work on as a director um at warner brothers this includes junior um and i think that's a downey junior movie addicted to love um Mm. in 97 two that eventually get made they don't let her direct any of them she ends up directing some movies for them um and she realizes it's a sham, <laughs> like that this is some kind of deal because Eastwood has an issue, like has a relationship with Warner Brothers. And she files another lawsuit, like at this point. And she was contending that the money WB was pretending that they were paying her actually came from Eastwood's pocket and was laundered through the operating budget of Unforgiven. Um, so she sues him in 95 again and um eastwood this is such a complicated story but like eventually like it ends up that um she ends up like you know like getting um a settlement from an undisclosed amount from eastwood but like go and look up eastwood's quotes about this woman that he was with for 20 years who had cancer during the palimony trial and some of the things that he says about a woman with cancer and it is gross it is gross the entire thing and this just adds to this a figure that we've talked about now two times at length way back in i think it's episode like 15 or 16 of modern westerns with unforgiven and how eastwood like you know was trying to repair in some way his image or bridge his image from spaghetti westerns to the modern day but also his politics were getting worked in there and then we talked about him just you know two months ago in terms of like how he deals with women and like those kind of things we talked about a while this guy is a piece of work (laughs) that's it like but this is very pivotal this movie for those two very specific reasons that he basically changes the rules of directors guild 
and then gets into long into a 20 year relationship where he basically wiretaps gaslights and uses his relationship with Warner Brothers that Warner Brothers goes along with to cut a fake deal with that same woman and then disses her because she had cancer and was like playing up her cancer. Good yeah, so good guy. Outlaw Jersey was pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. So this is why I don't want to talk about this stuff ever. Like <laughs> I don't want to sound crass, but I don't care. Like it doesn't affect my watching of that movie. And when I know things like that, it makes me like not want to watch it. Or it like makes me feel worse about watching stuff. I don't know. Like, why do you want to know things about people? um i don't know it's just it's part of the complex human tapestry frank i mean right so all the human tapestry is complex so when you can simplify it somewhat you know try to try and do that because otherwise you gotta like think about poor sandra Locke when you're just trying to watch a western (laughs) i didn't think about poor sandra Locke the entire time i was watching (sighs) <sighs> he's not he's not Woody Allen. He's just a prick. Um it's fine. <clears throat> I'll still watch one of his movies. We we did watch one of his movies. It was terrible. We watched one of his movies last year. You watched it, right? What was it? I don't know. The one where he goes down to Mexico, like you know, Oh yeah, I did watch that. That was yeah, terrible. It was, it was a bad movie. The Mule or whatever. Yeah, that's it. Bad movie. Yeah, awful movie. Yeah. I mean, that's what I said. I don't like him. I got like his recent stuff. I don't like, but you know. Yeah, I did. Did you watch the one about Jewel? Did you watch that at all? No, I heard it was good. Yeah, I did too. Um, I, I it's, keep meaning to watch that. When we saw the trailer for that, I can't remember what I saw the trailer for that in front of. That might have been in front of um fucking the lighthouse too. It might have been. Um, I thought, hey, this actually looks pretty decent, mm-hmm. but. I've never gone back to see if that's true or not. Yeah. So. I mean, obviously, though, like the dude's just doing that story. Even though the story absolutely is granted, the dude's doing it to like show fake news, you know? I mean, but even though Richard Jewell did get fucked over like really bad by all that. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So um, <laughs> let's move to Eastwood being a kind of a piece of shit to. Um, Everything is Illuminated, which is number two on your list from 2005. It is written and directed by Lee Shriver. It stars Elijah Wood, Eugene Hoots, Boris Leskin, and Larissa Lurie. It is a 67% from critics, 89 from audiences. Uh, so when you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's on the list. I am, um, I am flabbergasted by that critic score. Yeah, right. You'd think. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting when I I, I just I want to hear I, I, I want to hear some quotes. You want to hear it now? That part. No, okay. No, no, no. Let okay. me let's let, let's yeah, just yeah, talk about it first. Yeah. You already are you're, you're already making the narrative of the podcast all crazy anyway. I feel like we're on a true crime podcast now. Um. So adapted by novel of the same name by Jonathan Saffron Fuhrer. Um, about his experiences kind of reconciling 
with the his family's past to sort of finding their history um wood plays saffron fjord whose grandmother has just died and who's sort of realized that maybe his grandfather had a deeper life than what he knew so he decides that he's going to go to um where are they in poland i guess um to research just basically to find like to tr- his grandfather's last days um under nazi rule in in poland uh, where he was apparently saved by this woman augustine i knew no one's ever talked about and saffron fewer has no idea like who she is so he books a flight and hires these um this family to be his guides um both named Alex, the grandfather and the grandson. Um, the grandfather being a traditionalist uh, who says that he's blind and wears like the big, like blue blocker glasses, but can actually see. Um, has a seeing eye bitch, as it's called, this dog that's insane. And um, Alex, the younger, who's, uh, I don't know what they call him like the russian guys that wear the adidas track suits they're it's just like a chav in britain but it's called something else in russian i, I can't mm. remember what the I'm not pejor- the, the pejorative yeah. is um but you know just this guy who's into really like american culture and fashion um played by the lead singer of gogol Bordello. is that right yep, that's correct yeah um a mm-hmm. band that i have absolutely no taste or appreciation for <laughs> um this guy's really good in this role though mm-hmm so it's generally just a really small movie about them going into the kind of the back roads of Poland um, to find uh, Trachtenberg, um, Trachtenborg, which is the town that his grandfather lived in, um, only to find out that it was completely wiped off the map by the Nazis. Um, and that's where his grandfather uh, escaped from. And um the elder alex has uh a link to that as well so it's really just kind of a a really weird buddy road movie in a lot of ways um with wood and um i can't remember that dude's name the guy that plays alex yeah uh, yeah. um kind of binding with each other and finding some commonality even though they're from basically opposite ends of the earth in a lot of ways and then the idea of gaining that closure on both parts, both from the Polish grandfather able to make amends in a way with um, the woman that's still there, like the last surviving member of Trachtenberg, um, and Elijah Wood being able to sort of get some closure of seeing where his grandfather was from and meeting this woman and sort of, I hate saying sort of just basically being able to come to grips with his lineage and who his grandfather was as a man. Um, Really small, simple film, beautifully shot by Schreiber. Um, There's some shots in this movie that are um stick with you for a long time in particular when they're when they first get to where because they have a lot of trouble finding Trachtenberg but they find it eventually and it's this single house amidst this huge 
field of sunflowers and it's just so beautifully shot um and really well done um yeah i don't know it's just a it's a good movie you got me all thrown off now with this fucking eastwood shit um can't focus my thoughts uh wood is really fantastic in it um boot boots whatever his name he's really good in it so the guy that plays the grandfather is fantastic probably probably my favorite performance in the movie hmm. um honestly is the grandfather um yeah i didn't look up i i'm assuming he's a character actor but <clears throat> but i'm just really oh sorry super tired um surprised at the critics I can't think of anything in this movie that I would fault or overly criticize. Like, I think it's a pretty well done movie and give me some, um, give me some negative reviews. So Liam Lacey, uh, he's been the lead reviewer for the globe for a long time. He says it's a movie that wraps a story of mass murder in a package of whimsy and prefers to focus on our commonality rather than any collective complicity in the crimes of history. That's a common sentiment. Um, Slant magazine says most of everything is illuminated seems to have been dipped in a vat of secondhand Wes Anderson affectation. Um, so those two kind of wrap up the major critiques of this movie. The first critique is that, uh, that they are trivial, trivial, trivializing the subject matter of the movie by having so much of it be so many jokes, like, uh, like along the journey and, um, then the other one is the kind of Wes Anderson affectation or the whimsy aspect of things, which is that it's just too kind of fantastical type lightheartedness comedy, um, like Wes Anderson movies. The third critique I would say is that the protagonist is just not very dynamic and that wood's character um a fjord just kind of dips into the background and isn't a focus whatsoever in the movie and is just this kind of fussy character that kind of pops in with some dialogue every once in a while and that that's not what a protagonist should be necessarily so those are the three major critiques of 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 this movie from critics all right so i needed this (laughs) first of all it's a fucking adaptation of a book written by the man who lived the events that are in this movie so shut the fuck up about that like if jonathan saffron fjord who's jewish and wrote this book about himself and approved of this adaptation of the book like the, the i can't stand the idea of somebody like diminishing someone's personal opinion i can't believe i'm about to say this because it's so fucking anyway that man feels a certain way about a certain thing and it's a personal feeling that he has based on his life and experiences how can you tell him that like that shit like oh no that doesn't work it doesn't work for me man like go, go, go fuck yourself like there's so many 
Holocaust movies mm-hmm. and anti-Nazi movies that exist that are super serious and powerful and depressing that this movie of someone finding closure the fucking man kills himself right like the dude that's complicit murders himself because he feels so bad for what he did yes what else do you want like that's he's not like quote-unquote getting away with it like he's obviously carried this burden and wants to make amends he wants to be free of this like burden of guilt and that's the only way he can do it is by like apologizing and trying to do something you yes. know by bringing this young man back to this place because he has no interest in going Get and now her. bringing this what's now bringing this man back to this place where he can get some personal resolution and closure for his grandfather and then he fucking kills himself like go fuck yourself reviewer the Wes Anderson thing like whatever anybody that films a movie in a way with like I don't know like a soundtrack and there's nothing fantastical that happens in this movie the only thing is really the scene with the fucking um sunflowers and it's something that you get the impression that that was just Trachtenborg's like thing was they had this big field of sunflowers and that's how the grandfather really recognizes it in the first place, right? So, sure. And they, would probably, kind, they would probably also argue the eccentricity of the characters and stuff like that as well. Like maybe, but it's not like it. It. it I don't know. That, that's dumb. That's like saying that. I think of a good example. Like Brian De Palma is. I'm so tired of this Hitchcock shit because Brian De Palma you know makes thrillers or whatever and like obviously aping the shit out of hitchcock sometimes but he's still his own man mm-hmm. i mean fucking leave schreiber is an actor who made is making one movie that obviously means something to him because he adapted the screenplay and directed it mm-hmm. and doesn't make any other movies ever after so it's not like some kind i mean what does he know? He's just, I don't know. Anyway, it's, 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 it's a dumb complaint. That's a very mid-2000s complaint. Because now I feel like so many movies just sort of pull that that Wes Anderson shit to a much more egregious degree. Right. I Well, here's the thing, though, is that is it a very mid-2000s complaint? Because what I thought of is like Jojo Rabbit. Like when I was reading those reviews and Jojo Rabbit has an 80% from critics and a 94 from audiences. Right. Cause it's a different world now. It, Except for critics like are it's better, but it's still much lower than the audience score. And if you remember back to that point, um, I look, I just pulled it up again. Jojo Rabbit combines Quinn Tarantino and Wes Anderson in the worst cop out ways. Who said that? Uh, I don't know. A S Hamra from the Baffler. Um, I didn't click top critics. I just, I seriously just pulled it up. Um, those, those, those words didn't even make any sense together. Yes. Um, I would say it's much more 
fuck i don't know like jim jarmish maybe then wes anderson like it's it's not Mm. just because you put like a soundtrack over some people saying funny things doesn't automatically make it wes anderson number one it's filmed in real environments for the most part there's like no sets in this entire movie i would say that there's like not a single scene in this movie is filmed on an actual set i would imagine it's all filmed in real real settings Maybe the fucking sunflowers, I guess. I don't know. But what was the last complaint? There was another one. Non-dynamic protagonist that blends into the background. The whole purpose of that character is that he's a proxy. He's a vessel. Like, he's, he's the collector or whatever he calls himself. Like, his point isn't to be dynamic. His point is to transfer these things from his grandfather's past back to the place they came from and then at the end of the movie when he's like hugging the dog and talking to you know his new friend Mm -hmm. like he becomes animated and a real person but during that time his whole purpose it's almost um fuck what's that there's a jewish term for that but i can't think of what it is it's something that involves like the sitting shiva there, yeah, but there's like a term that comes with that. I, I can't remember now. Like mm-hmm. I'm now I'm all annoyed. Um, but that's a, a prominent idea in some religions is the idea that you know, you as the child or the progeny have to like fulfill the you know the last needs of your your dead relative, and that's what he's doing. He's just yeah. he's taking this thing that obviously meant so much to his grandfather. And he's the historian of his family. Like he's collected all the things of his family that he feels are important. And this is his way of truly honoring a man that meant more to him than anyone else and his grandfather, which is by finding the person that this necklace belongs to and bringing it to him. It's just, it's just a, I don't know, whatever. Fuck, fuck, fuck critics. I think, I think that leave schreiber did a really fantastic job directing this too. movie this was one of my favorite movies of the year that it came out it was one that i used to show to people purposefully like hey if you've never seen this movie you should watch this movie with me so i've probably seen this movie seven or eight times at least and maybe more than that hmm. and i'm always interested in it like i always like the performances i think that it you know it shows the guy with the broken english but it's not mocking him you know it's it's not it's not borat kind of it's it's like actually showing him in a light where his ideas and his passions are things that are admirable it's just his expression of it makes you laugh and eventually calls into question like what are you really laughing at at that point yeah it's a good movie you definitely should go if you've never seen Everything is Illuminated, go watch Everything is Illuminated. And if you've never read the book, you should read the book because the book is really good, too. The book is really good. I think this movie perfectly balances a sense of humor and dramatic gravitas. That was like the note that I took to myself. Like, that's it. That's all I have to say. I think it's a really good movie. I think it's good performances and it's well directed. Um, I did just do quick research, though. And I'm glad you get all that out and something something got you. Like yeah, I still think I think it's a misdirection. Like you went hard on 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 those criticisms. 
because of the Eastwood stuff, um, which I like. I, I like that I triggered you. I like doing that. Thanks. And <laughs> I do want to say there's consistency, though, between Slant and The Guardian, because I looked up JoJo Rabbit reviews from them, and Mark Kermode um, and we have heard from Peter Bradshaw before, are the two critics now for The Guardian, and one of them gave it a two and a half, and one of them gave it a one. What did um, Kermode give it? Kermode, hold on, let me get back to because let me tell you how much I hate that prick. I know you do. I'm sorry, three stars, three out of five stars. He gave it. Um, he he has the most fucking. He has to mention that he that he interviewed Watiti in his review. Um, like he, he's go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's just this pretentious ass motherfucker yeah. who is always trying to be more important than the movie he's reviewing and who just has really bad fucking taste. Like he, he loved dude. He, Oh my God. He like was ejaculating all over fucking dude. Mm -hmm. And the things that he said, like weren't even the things that were good about. Oh my God, man. He, he loves him some Chalamet though. Let me tell you. (laughs) And I like Dune a lot more than you. But it's not like the greatest movie ever, right? So he's got a lot of problems. His 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 ending here is: I suspect the strangely good natured feel of the film will win the hearts of many viewers, but my own head remained too muddled by its uneven and oddly indecisive approach to embrace whatever quirky virtues it may possess. This is Jojo Rabbit still um, in his three star review. That's his final determination. Uh, Peter Bradshaw gave it a one out of five, um, and the title—the thing he titled it—is Tikawatiti's Hitler comedy is intensely unfunny. Um, Slant was also um, consistent um, out of this. They um, gave it. Oh, geez, did they give it? Um, uh, zero stars out of four slant um and the title of it is uh jojo rabbit is tika watiti's marvel presents mind Kampf. um watiti is incapable of dealing with the twin horrors of oppression and doctrinization beyond cheap seats sentimentality and joke making um the kid's mother gets hung for fuck's sake (laughs) So hey, at least at least those uh, those publications are consistent. I'll give them. I'll give them Look, that. Here's here's the thing, and this has nothing to do with. Well, I guess it kind of has a little bit to do with it. Neither of us, I mean, as far as I know, has no Jewish background, no relatives that are Israeli or who suffered through the Holocaust. I had grandfathers that fought in world war ii but you know not it's 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 not my family's history basically my yeah my grandmother on my mom's side is a german jew um and her parents um left the country long before they left after world war one so it was not related to the holocaust but so here's my point mm-hmm. I have watched so many movies that are set in World War II and that deal with the Holocaust. And mm-hmm. some movies that I think are 
amazing classics of cinema, some movies that I find to be lazy and it's like any other subject matter. Like you're going to have some good movies and some bad movies that come out of it. Right. Like when you tell the story, Yeah. but there's got to be a variety in the way that those stories are told. You can't just tell the same story over and over and fucking this movie and Jojo rabbit are telling this movie is telling a story half a century after the events have occurred right it's because mm-hmm. it takes place in 2000 i think because his grandfather's like died the year before so it's like i i think they say at one point that it's in 2000 that this movie takes place sure and it's interesting to see them going through this landscape where the tanks are now covered in grass and mm-hmm. the ruins are almost forgotten and that everyone has forgotten that this town exists no one knows that this town is a town it doesn't even show up on a map and he's bringing relevance and honoring these people and making someone who was a villain at the time reassess and re-examine their life Mm -hmm. and make amends for the crimes they've committed and like Nothing, none of that movie ultimately matters other than that. That is the core of that movie, actually. Is making that character. I'm sorry. I mean, you're right. (laughs) Like, that's the point of the movie. Like, everything else is kind of to some degree window dressing, like, other than that. Like, And you look at Jojo Rabbit, Jojo Rabbit is the horror of World War II shown through the eyes of a child and showing that that child can eventually move away from his own predisposition to feel a certain way by being exposed to people. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not Jewish. So maybe it's not my place to speak on this, but I think that it's okay at this point, as long as you're never glorifying the Nazis to tell different stories from different perspectives, because ultimately people are eventually going to get, I mean, what what do we watch that fucking um, Europa Europa? You know what I mean? Like, it's Mm -hmm. the same thing there. Like, Mm -hmm it's okay to tell those stories from different perspectives because you have to know you can't just like telling the same story over and over makes it boring and it makes it where it loses its impact. And that's not something you ever want to have lose its impact. So if you can make me who is so tired of watching any movie related to world war two at this point in my life, appreciate a movie about world war two and actually think about it in a different way. That's, I think that's important to do that. I agree. I mean, all that shit is just a fucking Kermode. Kermode is the biggest fucking virtue signaler on the face of the planet. Like, fuck fuck Mark Kermode and his ass. Like, I hate that man so much. He knows horror so well, though, Frank. He he has bad opinions on that shit, too. (laughs) I subscribe to him on YouTube. I just want to have you know. And just to make myself angry when I watch his reviews. I didn't even know that. That's hilarious. Um... (laughs) I was just 
I figured if you knew that much about him already, you knew about his opinions on horror. So I was just, again, trying to get your goat. If you want to hear us talk about Jojo Rabbit, the movie, actually, you can go back to episode 74 of the podcast back in the archives. It was a fresh vibe episode. Good episode where we talk about uh, the A24 movie Waves, um, the uh, Doctor Sleep. Jojo Rabbit, and then we also talk about two art house horrors, The Lodge and The Other Lamb. So if you want to hear us talk more about Jojo Rabbit, uh, please go back and listen. Like, like I, I just pulled up his YouTube channel now because I hadn't looked at it today. Uh-huh. Motherfucker interviewed Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro about Nightmare Alley. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed that this is like a four-star review for Nightmare Alley right here. Well, he, right. He interviewed... I, well, right I, for Nightmare Alley. That's probably the difference. And I hadn't watched it yet because I'm trying not to see much about that movie because I just want to. Well, it's going to come out. I think it's February 1st on HBO Max as it comes out on Nightmare Alley. So you don't have to wait that much longer. God, I hate him. Oh, I hate him. All right. Anyway. All right. Let's. Okay. So we've had a couple detours here. Let's end this on some real positivity um, here. Number one movie on your list is John Favreau's Chef from 2014. It stars Favreau, also Sofia Vergara, John Leguizamo, Scarlett Johansson, Dustin Hoffman, Bobby Cannavale, and has a cameo from Robert Downey Jr. in it that's pretty funny has an 87% from critics, 85% from audiences. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the this film and um, why it's number one on your list? Um, so, again, it's just another really small story. Um, Favreau plays a chef who's a, um, not really a celebrity chef, but he's kind of like, like one of those hot young chefs that everyone talks about and has gotten a restaurant or has gotten a job in a restaurant um, owned by Dustin Hoffman because of his reputation as being this powerful, like creative, powerful force in the culinary world, but he's kind of fallen into a rut. So he finds out one night that um, Oliver Platt's reviewer character is coming to review his food. So he wants to make this crazy, um, eclectic menu and Dustin Hoffman's basically like, nah, you're going to serve the food you've been serving forever because it's what people like. And there's a lot of people here and I'm going to make some money. So the reviewer destroys the menu. And then that causes John Favreau to basically lose his mind and have like a meltdown um, over social media because he doesn't understand social media. So he uses it wrong. Um, eventually, sort of quits sort of gets fired from his job um and is offered by his ex-wife uh, played by Vigera uh to go with her and and their son to Miami um so he can kind of take care of the son while she's down there doing work and ultimately what happens is um she kind of tricks him into buying a food truck which is something that people have said that he should think about doing for a long time um, he doesn't have a very solid relationship with his son because he's very um, immature in his own way and just not not able to particularly reconcile himself with being a father. 
Um, and they they don't say this in so many ways as much as they show just through his actions and kind of like they talk around it a little bit, but it's um really well done. And so they fix up the truck. Um, John Leguizamo comes down from um, Los Angeles to help them fix up the truck and they decide they're going to serve this traditionalist Cubano food um, and they're going to drive the truck back to Los Angeles. So the son goes with them and then it's just a road trip um, with Favreau and his son bonding with each other and them kind of going from different city to city and gaining popularity and eventually making it back to Los Angeles where um, him and the son build a great relationship. He reconciles with the mother. Um, the critic backs him and he gets his own restaurant and that's the end of the movie. But a lot of really, really well done character moments between um, father and son and him and other people in his life. I mean, he does a very good job of playing this uh, this really kind of selfish, immature man, but that has still a lot of passion and a lot of heart and wants to do the right thing, but makes the wrong decisions a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a very, very raw, very human performance by Favreau. Um, I love the kid in it. I think he does a great job. Um, as well as Sofia Vergara is really good. Uh, Leguizamo is fantastic. Um, Downey Jr., like you mentioned, is just really funny in his brief role as the ex, ex-husband. The ex-husband before Favreau's ex-husband to the Sofia Vergara uh, character. Um really does a great job of making you want to cook and eat like the way they show the food being prepared and um, served. And it's just very, it's just, um, it's just a really, really great movie. Sad in a lot of ways, um, but not really sad. Like it's makes you tear up a few times, but mostly from, like just your engagement with them as, as a family. Um, really great positive ending. I don't know. I just, I, I really love it. It's um it's interesting. So I'll, I don't know if you put this in your notes, but Netflix actually has a supplemental series that came out hmm. two years ago, maybe. Okay. It's been out for a minute, but it came out like long after Chef, because Chef is what, 2014, I think, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Favreau went back and learned how to cook again. Like, So he had worked with a chef during the making of this movie so he could appear to be knowledgeable right. and how to actually cook so he didn't look like a, a doofus or whatever. Um, so Netflix made a series where he went back and did the same thing and basically goes to different restaurants and works with these famous chefs and learns how to cook their food um, mm-hmm. to kind of build his talent and stuff. And it's um, it's a fun show to watch. I, I really like him. I think that he's um, I think John Favreau is a really good dude in general. And I like the movies that he makes and I like the movies that he's in. 
<clears throat> and I really love this movie. This was one of those ones where it was like, I wasn't going to watch it. Like, I didn't really think anything of it. And mm-hmm. I was like, nah, I don't really care. And then I, I can't remember what happened. Like, maybe it was on Netflix originally. And I just happened to watch it and was completely blown away by how much I loved it. Like, just really, like, invested in the characters and the performances and the story. Um, and it's one that I've, I've only seen it now. Like, I think this was the third time when I watched it the other day. Um, and still just like really loved it every single time. So, yeah, this was the first time I saw it. Um, and my notes, I can't imagine there will be a more enjoyable movie on this list. Some critics say that it's too feel good. And I can see that, but this is, I don't know. This is just a good story about a dude, like trying to having a kind of a breakdown and refining his roots and trying something new in life and using that as a way to reconnect with his son. And I think the performances, like you said, are good all around. I don't think anybody's phoning it in. I think he called in favors for this movie from a number of people that he knows that includes like, you know, Johansson and Downey Jr. Um, and yeah, I forgot completely forgot about Johansson. She's really good in it too for that brief. Yeah, and I think every and and, and <clears throat> Hannibal um, is a dude that's like super underrated to me as a character actor. Like he's a guy that like comes in and just like nails everything that he does. And Leguizamo is kind of the same way, like where like Leguizamo comes into a movie and it's like it can be a big role or a small role, but it's like he kind of just gets it and and does like this really competent to beyond competent job. I think everybody in here is really good. I think it's a fun movie. I think it's a funny movie at times. I think it has a lot of like at times it's kind of especially during the journey across country it's like vignettes kind of but i think all the vignettes either add to the story or provide enough humor to keep the pacing going along really well sure and favreau is a dude i i'm trying to think i mean i think the last time and this isn't like coming at you i think the last time we talked about this dude was at all was when we did the movies Chris loves, but Frank hates with swingers. Mm. But, um, and Favreau is my favorite part of swingers. So, sure. And he wrote it, you know. Um, you know, I mean, like, like that's one of his first writing attempts. I think it's his first writing attempt. And, but like, in terms of like, like after that, it's like, I didn't really care for Made that much, which he directed. That's his first directorial uh, effort. But he directs Elf, which is a decent comedy. Um, yeah, I like Elf. Zathora, I never saw, but I heard good things about. I really like Zathora. Like okay, it. yeah, I th- I'm, yeah, I thought that was from you. And then he directs Iron Man, which sets the fucking tone for he- like most of the MCU at that point. Um, and then. Cowboys and Aliens I never saw but um and then he the, directs Iron Man 2 in this and then he's directed the couple Disney you know CGI fests of Jungle Book and Lion King which I saw 10 to 15 minutes of each of those and was not particularly impressed myself but um which 
odd for me to say I would prefer to see the animated versions of each of those movies as opposed to whatever that is. But but he's he's creating not only is he quite is he creating quite a resume for himself, he's also really ahead of the fucking curve. But this movie feels really personal. Yeah, I think that's true. And um, because he wrote like this is the first movie that he wrote since Couples Retreat, which uh-huh. he direct, which he did not direct. He did not direct that movie. Um, but he wrote it. Him and Vince Vaughn wrote it. Uh, but he didn't direct it. So this is the first movie uh, that he's directed and written since Made. And that makes sense because he had to write and direct something to get it made after Swingers, which he just wrote and starred in. So, like, it, it makes sense early on. So, like, after he basically does Elf, which puts him on a, on a certain level, Zarthura, which puts him up on a slightly higher level with a bigger budget, and then Iron Man, he goes back to do this movie. Um, this is a passion project, and I think it works out really fucking well for him. Like I, I, yeah. I think he nails it, and um, this is a movie that I could see myself just throwing on a couple, like a couple more times in my life at some point, just to be happy. Yeah, it's a great, re- the great, great, great definition of like why you would watch this movie. Yeah. I, um, I think it's interesting that people say that it's just a feel-good movie because the first 30 minutes of this movie is absolutely not feel-good at all. Like, it's very, right. very uncomfortable and very awkward in his very Curb Your Enthusiasm play. Right, it like, is uh, incredible. Yeah, yeah. And his interactions with everyone that he meets, including his son, the only one he really has any kind of, like, decent personal relationship with is the scarlett johansson character and even that has an edge of like kind of grossness to it but it's a movie about a guy rebuilding himself from being completely broken and i think it's amazing the way that it like builds you back into a point where you feel good for this man like you because you kind of don't like him when you first start watching the movie there's things yeah. about him that are decent but there's definitely things about him where he's an asshole mm-hmm. and then he's building himself into you know back into a like a, a person again and it's it's fascinating to watch and doing doing so with um you know with his with his child and with his ex and his best friend like it's just it's a really great really great experience so i don't know i I just really love that movie quite a bit yeah um yeah and we're not and so talking about Favreau, it's like not only does he have that he also has written 12 episodes of the mandalorian um it's like a majority of them basically he's written because there's what 16 so he's written all but four episodes of the mandalorian which i think is a really strong show and i think he only directed two or something like that but he's also written four episodes of um 
hold on. No, all seven episodes of the Mandalore, or sorry, a book of Boba Fett are written by Favreau. Um, he directs the first five episodes of that show. Like, so not only is he like done movies that like are highly successful he's now doing shit for disney in terms of television that's highly successful like like this guy has the ability in terms of importance for directing to be one of like the gen xers in terms of directing in terms of influence largely because of the Marvel Disney connection. Yeah. Like of how much he's influenced by directing Iron Man and I think he really understands and this is why I like Zathura so much. I think he really understands how to make movies that just have a general appeal to everyone. Where you could say that and this movie obviously has a lot of profanity and whatnot in it, but you look at stuff like his Disney shit and it's like he's making movies that have the most broad he's making creating content i hate that phrase but he's Hmm. creating something that has the broadest appeal possible from everyone from a child to you know my 70 year old parents like love the stuff that he does and i think he has a real strong feeling for what makes something compelling without pushing it too far into the realm of being too childlike or being too mature like he knows how to straddle that line and it's just um i don't know i'm always happy when he's successful because i really like him a lot so yeah um agreed i yeah it's interesting i mean favreau is um like swingers itself like this guy's going to be permanently regardless of everything like associated with gen x i think because of swingers regardless of anything else and like he could end up becoming our most influential director i think in some ways despite the fact that it's not necessarily artistic (laughs) and that in some ways is awesome but kind of sucks because it's like who are the best gen x directors Frank, it's just okay, like off top of your head. Like, who are the most prominent or well known or like, you know, like, like, okay, because I can never Kevin remember who's won, even though we don't want to talk oh, about yeah. that. Right? Like, I can never remember who's in this goddamn Gen X shit. Tarantino. Uh, Tarantino, Kevin Smith. Yeah, of course. All right. Um, but Tarantino is on the artsy side. making me look this shit up god damn it these text messages keep fucking... um a bunch of people I don't know uh, I don't even know what he's talking about in those text messages alright no, this is just Gen X celebrities. I want to see Gen X directors. Um, P.T. Anderson, Nolan. Right. Um, 
Fucking God. No one so directs what, like what's, a what's, no one directs like a boomer rather than an extra though. Come on. Yeah, but he's still age wise. What's your um, What's your claim about Favreau here? That Favreau could end up becoming one of the more influential. Okay, yeah, I'll give you that. I agree with that. Uh, yeah, Smith, Sophia Coppola, who you mentioned, Spike Jones, mm-hmm. Fincher, Soderbergh, Linkletter. Yeah. I really feel bad for Richard Linkletter because, like, he's a guy that's just fallen off so much. Yeah. But, like, think about a lot of those people. They're, they're all, like, considered, like, art house people, right? Like, a lot of them, like, you know, like, so here's here's my thing is, like, why I'm saying that in terms of influential. It's, like, is, is Favreau, like, our generation Spielberg? Oh, that's a, that's not a bad way to put it. I never thought of that before until just now, but it's like, who's the, who's the boomer that makes these big kind of epic family friendly slash friendly movies. I mean, we can also come back and make a small movie here and there just because it's something he's passionate about. Yeah. I mean, Spielberg's a a good, a good, a good comic. Yeah. Cause Lucas never tried to do that because he made American graffiti. And then what else did he have to do? Just make the Star Wars movies and right and yeah. be in, insanely rich, right? Um, <clears throat> somebody has Tarantino at eight, at eight on a list here. Somebody has David O. Russell above Tarantino. Like what? What is this person's name? Sam Silbert. Just so you know, Sam Silbert. Did you did David you do the Russ- top, top ten best generation X directors? Uh whatever the fucking first link was when I searched Gen X directors. Taste of Cinema. Yeah, that's it. Taste of Cinema. Sam Silbert thinks that David Russell is ahead of Tarantino. He also thinks no one's ahead of Tarantino, just so you know. He thinks Linkletter and Jones and Fincher and Aronofsky. And look, I won't argue with somebody over P.T. Anderson being over Tarantino. Like, I think P.T. Anderson would be my number one. I think P.T. Anderson is the best filmmaker. I think if you take the idea of Gen X culture into account, I don't know how Tarantino's not the number one person. If you take the 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 generational characteristics and maybe stereotype even of Gen X into account. I don't know how Tarantino is not the number one, but if you're just talking about a pure filmmaker, yeah, I think P.T. Anderson is probably number one. Oh yeah, but yeah, he's 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 amazing that dude. Yeah. But yeah, Favreau is impressive. So um, just very quick follow up because I think we're done with this podcast, but. Uh, Breskin or whatever the the old man from Everything Is Illuminated, whatever that guy's name is, he was in the Vampire's Kiss, Nick Cage movie as Fantasy Cabbie. Do you remember this mm-hmm. Fantasy Cabbie? That was that was that was one thing you would know him from, other than Everything Is Illuminated, Fantasy Cabbie in Vampire's Kiss. 
I mean, I know the cabbie in Vampire's Kiss, so I assume yeah. that that's yeah. that that's him. So that's another thing that that he was in that you would know. So, how do you feel about uh, Louis Anderson dying? How do we feel about a lot of people dying, Frank? We haven't talked about anybody because we don't do these retrospectives anymore. So you got Louis Anderson, right? Right. We have Meatloaf today. Yeah. Um, we have Betty White. We have um, Peter Bogdanovich. And um, what is who else? There's another one. Oh, um, what's Sydney Poitier? Um, Sydney Poitier, yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a bunch of people that died. How do I feel about Louis? An- do you feel Louis Anderson's death more than most? It actually made me feel kind of cold inside. Um, <laughs> in what way? Well, number one, I thought he'd been dead for a long time, so it was. Well, that's even hopes hosting the family wasn't he hosting the family feud until a few years ago or something i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't know those things come on i ain't watch no television definitely not family feud now what's his name steve harvey Um, i mean louis anderson was hosting it for a long time like 1994 or some shit i don't know what after that was that was ray combs after what's his name hung himself yeah ray combs um it was weird because it's like Here's a guy that I've known about my entire life almost in Louis Anderson. Yeah. And have maybe every once in a while like laughed at something he said, but for the most part, just had no interest in him as a human being. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, he's dead. I don't know. It's just, it was like I said, it just made me. At first, it was, oh, he's, he's dead now. Like, I thought this because I had to go and look at the date because I thought I was just like, five years ago or something and then right. um i don't know just i don't know god why is this so hard to find about like fucking his stint on family feud oh jesus christ frank you're right <laughs> from 1999 to 2002 yeah it's forever ago <laughs> that's a very long time ago um it was probably the last time i was watching family feud honestly <laughs> So Betty White didn't shock me. like look I love Betty White. I I loved I I grew up with my mom watching The Golden Girls on Friday and Saturday nights and shit like that and I rediscovered them in my late teens early 20s with whatever station me and Bloodsoe used to watch The Golden Girls on whatever station fucking lifetime who the fuck knows like and i i love the golden girls i'll still go back occasionally i think it's on hulu and just like watch random episodes of the golden girls um and but like betty white was 99 i I knew they were going to do the special when she was 100 but it's like it didn't surprise me it wasn't shocking um sydney portier like my understanding as an Xer who was born in 1980 of Sydney Portier was whatever shoot to kill or something like with Tom Berenger. Like, do you, do you remember this movie from like 1987 with him and Kirstie Alley and Tom Berenger going up a mountain? And like, do you remember this movie? Like, some like no. Kirstie Alley gets kidnapped. Okay, so this is like some my like thriller shit, like that, like I only I know because it was on Cinemax too much or something in 1987. Um, 
that's my understanding of Cinecordia, <laughs> like, until I got older and realized, like, oh, this guy is, like, you know, really impactful in terms of cinema history. But, like, that's how I think of the guy. So it's like, it was like, oh, that's a shame that Sidney Portier is dead. Like, I didn't, I don't feel the historical context because they didn't live through it, um, even though I understand it. And Bogdanovich, I think I've heard you shit on Bogdanovich too much in my life. You hate Peter Bogdanovich. Do I? Yeah, like I've heard you talk about because look, we talked about like his best movie, which is Last Picture Show on the podcast, which is a fantastic fucking movie. Um, and giving him credit there, but like, haven't you always shit on Bogdanovich about? I gotta look and see what he did now. I think no, no, no about being like, like Orson Welles, like Water Boy. Haven't I heard you like? No, that's not that's that? not me. No, no. I um maybe it's me. <laughs> I don't really have anything against I haven't seen a whole lot of Bogdanovich stuff after like the seventies. Hmm. And I like a decent amount of his stuff in the seventies. I like Paper yeah. Moon, I like Daisy Miller. I like Mask. Hmm. Maybe it is you. Maybe it is me. Pierre Bogdanovich is like a Orson Wells, like just Waterboy, sycophant. Like he is a sycophant. Like for Orson. I mean, because he was he was like this guy. Like he was like the dude that like went when Orson Welles is all old and is like, teach me, master. Like and and tell me all your stories, and then like would be on every every single thing with Orson Welles. Like he's like the expert on Orson Welles. Maybe it is me that like investigated Orson Welles for many years and like kind of like took that but um most most younger people or most people that would have last seen bogdanovich don't know him as director he was the therapist of dr melfi the therapist on the sopranos um in a really funny and um you know like more comedic than anything role but um you know still nails it as this is kind of non-plus therapist um and who else louis anderson did we go through oh oh and meatloaf yesterday um yeah two two out of three ain't bad that's my my meatloaf joke (laughs) um well i mean meatloaf we have we talked we have talked about one of meatloaf's film performances and Rocky Horror Picture Show before. I can't remember what episode that is. Um, but Meatloaf is in that movie. And um, I don't know, TMZ's reporting that he wasn't vaccinated and he was, used to, and he would post about the Australian mandates um, being like um, awful and stuff like that for This is Meatloaf or Louis Anders? Meatloaf. Meatloaf. So, um, so yeah, Milo's dead now. Um, being anti-vax. So. Um, but Louis Anderson, who knows? Look, we're gonna see a lot of this shit over the next few months, man. Like with like slightly older celebrities dying. Like it's I mean, it was already happening in two thousand 
21. I think I think we're gonna see a lot over the next few months of some of these older celebrities dying. Um that's why there's been so many. But um yeah, Louis Anderson. I remember Wesley telling me one time he saw Louis. It was the funniest thing he ever saw in person. He said it was a Louis Anderson stand up in Las Vegas. And um, I can I can imagine Louis Anderson being really funny in person. Like, you know, when you're like there in the crowd and stuff like that for like a intimate, you know, like Las Vegas setting. Like, I can imagine. He's a funny guy. Like, I, I've seen stand up performances from him and stuff like that. Like. Um, he could be funny. So well, that's the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have to piss yet, Frank? I uh, no, I'm all right. Oh, okay. I only had I've anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your urination habits. For whatever reason, being sick, I've been peeing less. So I don't know like what caused yeah. that, but yeah. We haven't. I, I was trying to avoid that in the entire episode, but like you're, you're sick, you've had a sore throat, but you don't have a sore throat now. Now you just have congestion. But you mm-hmm. took a, you took a test today. Yeah, I took a PCR test this morning. Yeah, I've taken several rapid tests over the past week, and they've all come back negative. But um, yeah. like four people in my office had tested positive for COVID after testing negative on rapid tests. So. I got quarantined by my work. I'm out until at least I think I can go back on Tuesday, maybe. Like no matter what, well, that's five days. Five sure. days. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But um, you said so, you, but you have strict, slightly stricter protocols than CDC. Nah, we 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 rolled them back. We're oh awesome. We're just you're, we're just following. You're just CDC like everybody else. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm curious though that if I test positive, I'll get my results on Monday. So I don't know if they would make me stay out longer or if they would just let me come back on Tuesday. I think it's from the well, it would be from the time that you tested positive, which would be today. Or onset of symptoms is what I read. Because mm. I was looking into it. Oh, are you saying that those CDC guidelines are really confusing? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I'm just saying uh-huh. that that's that's what it said. From the from the onset of symptoms. Right, which was honestly was Wednesday. Right. Um, Wednesday night, like I started to get the sore throat. When Thursday was the worst. I guess it's only Friday now. Thursday was the worst. That's when my throat hurt like the worst and super congested. I've been pretty lethargic all day too, but um I have not been peeing much, so there it is. So I don't want to go because have you been drinking water though? Yeah, I had two bottles of water while we were sitting there. Um, and I probably had, I don't know, eight or nine bottles of water today. Um, I just don't want to talk about Louis Anderson anymore. I definitely don't want to talk about, uh, um, comedians or celebrity deaths while you have COVID. Well, I don't care about that. It ain't going to affect <laughs> me. Uh, um, I knew that was going to be your answer. That's why I asked. <laughs> um, it's like it's like it's like possibly having COVID, and who knows, maybe even dying. Like, who cares about that? But I don't talk about comedians, right? <laughs> what? Um, we last... talk about comedians a whole bunch in February, so that's exciting. We are. That's a good segue, Frank. So, um, next week we will be back with. 
the first episode of our year-long series of the top five horror movies of each year of the 1970s. We will be covering the year 1970, and then we will be taking a break and then coming back with the top five comedy films in the 1990s and the top five black comedy films of all time and then 19 horror 1971 we will finish up the month with in february um be sure to check out the best 30 minutes podcast if you were searching for that make sure to type the the in front of best 30 the numerals three and zero minutes um in whatever app you're using uh because we will be uh releasing episode next week um on that but um yeah we usually record those in the first week of the month so be sure to check out that sister podcast for us where we cover different nostalgic kind of you know topics from our childhood and reminisce on them um trying to hit 30 to 40 minutes somewhere yeah it's fun to do it is yeah i feel like we haven't recorded one in a million years so yeah um yeah secret um you know the second one of the month is um always the one where we've been on for two hours probably at that point or something like that um but Yeah, they're always like super fun to record. Um, and I don't know the topics for the month of February, but um yeah, we'll have to figure that out. All right. So lastly, I guess the last plug is the spin chagrin, mm. which is going into its fourth episode next week. The first three episodes have been Lawnmower Man 2, Beyond Cyberspace. Episode two was Horse Girl, the Allison Brie um, psychological drama. And then episode three was Larry the Cable Guy Health Inspector as the primary um, movie that was talked about. But as a bonus, uh, Employee of the Month starred Dane Cook and Jessica Simpson uh, was also talked about. So we will be releasing the fourth episode for that and the category for that as we spin a wheel each week for a random category was what frank the mighty have fallen yes the mighty have fallen that's right um so frank will unveil the movie that he has watched for the category the mighty have fallen on tuesday night um this coming week and uh that'll be the fourth episode and we will spin the wheel again and see what happens for frank of what he has to pick whether he gets something awful or something that he can finagle into being something possibly good it's not good this <laughs> well, one this week right but who knows about the next week i really try larry the health inspector was the worst Nobody wants to hear about people want to hear about listen. here. Here's the sad thing about Antonioni. People want to hear about Larry, Larry the Cable Guy health inspector just as much as Antonioni or Antonioni just as much as Larry the Cable Guy health. You got to say, listen, you got to give it its proper due. Uh, it's Larry the Cable Guy colon health inspector. Mm. Very important to put that do colon you, in by there. me saying health like Larry the Cable Guy health inspector. Do you imagine a comma? Well, you first said Larry the Health Inspector, and that was especially egregious. I don't imagine a comma. I just think that Larry, 
fights really hard to make the colon prevalent in his films and you should mm-hmm. put the colon in the title anyway all right that's all of our plugs for the week. thank you for listening i do have to pee now huh. it just happened good <laughs>